We began uh, last week in chapter 7 of John. That's where we found ourselves. And when we picked up the story, we saw that after, uh, uh, after this, the, the time that, uh, and everything that is referred to in chapter 6, it's, uh, John records that Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews, and remember anytime you see that phrase, the Jews, it's not a, a general reference to maybe all of the Jewish population, but probably more specifically a phrase that John uses to identify the leadership of the Jewish people. So the Jews or the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, uh, oftentimes referred to as the Feast of Booths, the Festival of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a very, very, very well-attended festival for in, in Jerusalem that happened annually, that commemorated God uh, providing for Israel as they wandered from the wilderness between their exit from Egypt and their eventual entrance into the Promised Land some 40 years later. And so as they, as they uh, commemorated that, God, that provision that God had for them on an annual basis, they would uh, construct these, these temporary shelters. This is a, this is a, uh, a, con- a contemporary version of, these, of, the, of a temporary shelter. A, a friend of mine shared this picture with me, and so this is somebody's uh, you know, modern take on, on what, a sh- what a shelter would look like. And so these shelters would pop up all over Jerusalem, in the, in the streets, in the courtyards, and alleys, on top of roofs. Uh, it was, they, were, they were just everywhere. And it was a, a super well-attended festival because it was extremely fun. People wanted to be there. And it was also was something that was required for every male uh, Jewish person who was living within 20 miles of Jerusalem. They were required to come. So you wanted to be there. Many people had to be there. And so it was a big thing. And so uh, Jesus was encouraged by his brothers we saw last, last week to, to go up to this, this great celebration and kind of like, show your stuff, man. And Jesus responded to them as they said that in verse 6 by saying, my time has, has not yet arrived. That's why he was traveling in, in Galilee and why he, why he wasn't, uh, uh, didn't want to travel in Judea and why he wasn't going to uh, go to the feast in the way that they wanted him to. He says, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. In other words, your time, the time for you to, to go to the festival is now because it's time for the festival to take place. So your time is right now. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Remember, we talked about the, the, t- the word that Jesus used for time is not the way we oftentimes measure time in a chronological way, right? Yesterday, today, tomorrow, last week, this week, next week. We're at 11.10 on Sunday, uh, February 14th, 2021. That's all chronological way of speaking of time, right? But Jesus is, is talking about this appointed time, this set time. And he's saying that it's, it's not, it wasn't the time for me to go with you, with the, with the throng of the rest of the pilgrims with the in mass. It's not time for me to do that. It's not the appointed time. It's not, you, you see, Jesus is always functioning on divine time. He's always functioning. Yes, does he interact with the calendar and the feasts and the festivals and the, and, and the rhythm of the Jewish week even as it relates to the Sabbath? Absolutely. But he's operating also on this higher level of time where eternity is kind of stepping into time. 
And so Jesus doesn't go up at that point. But after his brothers leave, in verse 9, we saw that after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. And after his brothers had gone up to the festival, he also went up, not openly, but secretly. He didn't go up as his brothers did. He didn't go up, you know, to, and, and with the idea that he was going to be noticed. But instead, he went like a little bit more in secrecy. And we saw that when he went up, that John begins to give us some details of some people who are at the feast, right? The Jews who were trying to kill him. In verse 11, we find out they're asking, where is he? And then among the crowds, there's all this murmuring going on. There's a lot of division about this person of Jesus. Some are saying about him that he's a good man. Look what, look, look at, listen to his teaching. Didn't you hear what he did for that that, that man who had been paralyzed for, for and lame for 38 years? Did you hear about his interaction with that Samaritan woman? Did you hear about that event where he fed 20,000 people? I mean, all of these things about him, some of them are saying that he's a good man, and others are saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. But nobody was talking about him publicly. It was an, an open discussion. In other, word, in other words, it was what Scripture identifies in the Greek as a, a secret debate. Why? Because they're afraid of, of the Jews. Remember, the, the Jews hold, the, the leadership there, they hold a very, they wield a very authoritative kind of, you know, uh, ominous kind of uh, hammer over the people in many ways. And, and so even the people are afraid to discuss this teacher because they're not sure, is he a good guy? Is he a deceiver? What's his identity? Well, that kind of sets the stage then for Jesus making his entrance into the festival. And that's where we pick up the story. In verse 14, so again, if you got your device or your Bible, uh, I'll be using the Christian Standard Bible throughout uh, uh, the rest of the message today so you can follow along in that translation or whichever one you prefer. Verse 14 says this then. John tells us that when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. In other words, when he went up, not in a, in a, and he he was in a public setting, but he wasn't like in a, in a large group environment. Instead, most people believe that Jesus, when, he, when it says he began to teach, he, he sat with a group of people, a smaller group of people, and, and he instructed them. Later in the feast, we're going to find out and, and, and we're going to see Jesus stand up and cry out in verse, 34, verse 37 in a very loud voice and proclaim something that's super significant, like the high point of the feast and one of the high points of Jesus' time at the feast. So he's going he's gonna, to, the word literally means to croak like a raven. He's going to cry out like that, but that's not what he's doing here. He's just sitting with a small group of people, and he's instructing them. It's a more intimate session of instruction. It's actually the word didasco, which means to teach for transformation. It, the scripture says that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news. That's, that's the kerygma, the caruso, to proclaim as a herald, to shout, to, to announce, to herald, to proclaim. He, he did that. He was proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God was here. In fact, he had brought the kingdom of God, but he also went about teaching, and that's what he's doing here. The teaching that Jesus is doing here has a, a more uh, direct implication for the transformation of those who are receiving the teaching. It's the idea that I'm not teaching just to announce something, but I'm teaching so that your life will be different. 
So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's, the festival is half over. Now, that could mean literally he's there on the fourth day of the feast, right in, smack dab in the middle. Could mean a little bit more general reference that, you know, right around the middle time when the feast was about half over, Jesus shows up. He begins to teach people, and there's a reaction. And the reaction, and, and, and here's what we're going to see as we, as we uh, cover these verses today, this section of, of John today, is we're going to see all these different representations of what Jesus is about. And with, res- with respect to his teaching, the crowd is going to say, man, this is like blowing our minds. It says the Jews were amazed. It's, a, it's the Greek word thaumatso. It means to, to wonder or to marvel at. It, it's the same word that's used by, by Matthew in, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, when, uh, when, the, when, when they're amazed uh, at Jesus being able to speak to the wind and the waves and cause them to be still. They're marveling at Jesus and they say, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Now, what this, the, the actual literal translation of this would be, how does this man know letters? That's literally what it means. That doesn't make sense to us, right? Like, yeah, Jesus should know his letters, right? You learn that in the ancient uh, kindergarten. It's not how should he, uh, that's not what it means here, but instead, how does this man know the sacred letters? In other words, how does he know the Hebrew Bible so well? Because he hasn't been trained. He hasn't been through the rabbinical schools, and the rabbinical schools were quite intense. For instance, sometimes some of the rabbis were known, some of the students of rabbis, some people who were involved in training were known as a bag of books. You ever, you've, heard, you've heard of that phrase. It actually was something that was kind of like a, somebody who was a, a little bit of a, a critique on them. A bag of books was a person, now remember, books were in short supply in the ancient world. It wasn't like we are, you know, now we have lots of paper books, but now we've transitioned all the way out of that into digital, right? But we have ample supply of books. So we, you know, we don't have to commit as much to memory because what do we do? We just got to look it, look it up, right? You know, look it up in a book, look it up online. We find it, we know it. When the ancient world, because books were in, su- in such short, short supply, part of the rabbinical training was that people would memorize things, memorize entire books. In fact, there were r- rabbinical students who had memorized from, f- from cover to cover multiple books. And so people began calling them bags of books. That's kind of all they are. And in fact, some, some rabbis and their students, they weren't so concerned about what the, what the knowledge of that book necessarily would cause them to do it was just that they had the information so when they're saying about looking at Jesus they're saying well he's no bag of books right he doesn't he hasn't been trained some rabbis in their particular way of training they were trying to make sure that they trained their 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 um, their followers their disciples into how you could meet the actual letter of the law to the slightest degree so that you could have as much freedom in your life as you wanted but you were still maintaining the letter of the law there are all these different rabbinical schools and they produced all these people. And, and all these people are saying about Jesus is they're absolutely shocked. They're amazed because this guy has not been through any of that. So how is he teaching like this? We've never heard anything like this. It doesn't sound like anyone else. And so what in the world is going on? He hasn't had the training that the, that the rabbis have. 
And in response to them, Jesus is going to answer them, and as he answers them, he's going to identify himself as something specific. He's going to identify himself as something that he's already said about himself on multiple times just in this gospel. He calls himself the sent one. He says, Jesus answers, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. Jesus has said this on multiple times, like I said, in the Gospel of John. We saw it in John 4, 34, when he said, My food is to, the, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We saw it in him, him call himself the, the, that he, he, the, the sent one, that he had been sent by God, sent by his Father, in chapter 5, verses 23, 24, verses 30, and 37. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see also that same thing in John 6, 39, in John 6, in John 4, uh, 6 44. Here in John 7, we see it. We're going to see it multiple times in the rest of this chapter. And on into verse 8, Jesus wants us to be clear that he is not speaking on his own, but instead he's speaking on behalf of the one who sent him. It's a key feature in John. And so in verse 17, he says, if anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Now this phrase, I'm speaking on my own, it, 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 it doesn't resonate with us as much because we in contemporary culture, we kind of value people who teach original stuff. Like, have you ever been in a, in a, in a service or, or in, a, in a classroom and you've heard something, you heard someone teach something, and you're like, wow, I never thought about that that way. And we kind of put a really high value on that. Somebody, we don't want someone to just tell us the same old, same old, same old, right? In the ancient world, it was a little bit different. In fact, they were very skeptical of people who brought original teaching. They didn't think that that was actually a good thing. In fact, if somebody brought an original teaching and they could not trace it back to some ancient rabbi that they could say, well, this was the source of where I got that information, then actually their teaching would be discredited. Now, Jesus knows this about them. And since he knows this about them, he's tracing back to his ancient rabbi, who happens to be his father, who happens to be God. If anyone wants to do his will, he would know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. And what did he say? I'm not speaking on my own. I'm speaking on behalf of the one who sent me. Which highlights another aspect of Jesus again as he talks about himself. In verses 18, he said, in verse 18, he says, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, again, there's that word again, who sent him, there is no unrighteousness in him. Here we see Jesus as the humble one, the true one, right? The one who sent him is, the one who is sent by God is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Think about this, this way in which Jesus is, is identifying himself as someone who has been sent by someone else. It's interesting, I did some study on that, that phrase and that word. The word that's used here by, uh, by, by John to represent God, Jesus being sent, and it's the same word that's used all throughout the gospel, is the word pempo, and it means to dispatch, but check this out, to dispatch someone especially on a temporary errand. Now, 
I would never have characterized the ministry of Jesus as he was sent by the Father as a temporary errand, right? But that's exactly what it is. Remember, the Son coexisted with the Father from before the beginning, right? Jesus, as as the Son, is is the co-eternal with God. He is part of the triune God, and the triune God has, has existed forever. But when he was sent to the earth, he was sent on this temporary errand. And that's what exactly he's here to do. He's, actually, he's here to do a chore for the one who sent him. Which again just highlights more his humility. The humility that he has in trying to accomplish that temporary errand for God in the manner that God wants him to accomplish it. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But what is Jesus doing? He is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And so as such... He's humble. He's true. And John says there is absolutely no unrighteousness in him. The word unrighteousness is the Greek word adikia. It is um, injustice is what it, the, the, the te- really the technical definition of it is. It's re- it refers to legal injustice. Um, it refers to a, to, an, um, to a judge who might be unjust. So it, it refers to the quality of injustice and by implication the act of injustice, moral wrongfulness in someone's character, in their heart, uh, in their action. It's, it's, it's just a broad-based term that, that refers to both who you are and what you do as it relates to something being unrighteous, unlawful, morally incorrect, unjust. And what does John say about him? There is no, there's none of this in him. And so he is humble, he is true, and he is absolutely perfect. Jesus, the mind-blowing teacher who was sent from God, has, this char- has these character traits of being humble, being true, and being perfect, having no unrighteousness in him. He continues this discussion with his opponents as they're challenging him and his teaching by, by looking directly at them in verse 19 and saying, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And by the way, when Jesus would have said, none of you keeps the law, that would have been a shocking accusation to them. The law was not just something for them. The law was at the very heart of their identity. And so for Jesus to accuse them that none of them were keeping it, that is an, that's, a, that's a pretty bold move on Jesus, which, I, again, I think identifies him as this one who has no fear, who's willing to issue this challenge and speak truth even when it's absolutely uncomfortable. He knows that people are trying to kill him, and so he asks them, why are you trying to kill me? That's not lawful, by the way, right? And so Jesus is, is, is raising the stakes. Again, show, starting with this very, very um, kind of like subdued way of gathering a group, a small group of people, and, and teaching them the things of God, their minds are blown. He helps them to identify the source of his teaching, which is God himself. And then as this humble, true, perfect representation of the Father, Jesus challenges them in their hypocrisy. None of you keeps the law. The crowd's like, man, you must be crazy. Not only crazy, you, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? And so again, that now... I wonder, as, as I'm thinking about the way that this all kind of went down, remember, Jesus has probably gathered a small group around him. As that small group, you know, maybe as, he, as, as he's teaching them, and this might be going over the course of minutes or maybe even hours, 
Jesus is having this dialogue with them. Their group probably is growing larger. There's probably now some leaders there. There's probably some of the uh, John Q. public is there. All of those kind of people are there. And so the crowd begins to say, wait a second, man. You have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus, deflecting that, then highlights another aspect of himself. It's like that Jesus is trying to show them all these things about who he really is. And he says, I perform, performed one work, and you are all amazed. By the way, same word there. The same word that was used when they were amazed at his teaching. Jesus is saying, and it's interesting, for Jesus, it was just a work. It was just a task. It was just another thing on his to-do list of this temporary errand that he was sent on by his father. It was just a work for him. And they're amazed. You see, for Jesus to do something miraculous, it's normal, it's simple, and it's natural. Now, what is Jesus talking about? He doesn't uh, specifically allude to it here, but from the context that we're going to get to in a minute, Jesus is is referring to the healing that he provided to a man who was at the uh, pool named Bethesda, the man who had been lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. So what Jesus is referring to, as we're going to see in just a minute, is that very healing. He says, I did that one thing, which for me was just a work, for me just a task. For me, just a a normal thing that I would do. And you guys are amazed. And then he goes on and begins to talk about, as he's he's identified this this idea of of, of the law, Jesus is going to talk about Moses and the law. He says, this is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And what's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about here a hierarchy in Jewish law. He reminds them first that, remember, even though you would refer to the the law of Moses as it relates to circumcision, it really didn't come from Moses. It's much older than him. It would have come from Abraham. Abraham is the one who would have received the command by God to circumcise every male child on the eighth day. So there was this issue that happened, of course, in the the context of, of the Jewish culture. There would be males whose Eighth day after their birth, which would, again, by the, by the command given by God to, to Abraham, they should have been circumcised. Well, sometimes that day was going to land on the Sabbath. And so if the day landed on the Sabbath and circumcision was known as a work, what did you do? Did you do the work of circumcision on the Sabbath or did you let it go because no work was to be done on the Sabbath? Well, the general understanding was, uh, was found in a phrase by a very renowned uh, ancient rabbi who said this, great is circumcision which overrides even the rigor of the Sabbath. In other words, as it relates to the hierarchy and our understanding of law, circumcision is above Sabbath keeping. If the, if the, if the child's eighth day of, uh, after their birth lands on a Sabbath, then yes, you should do the circumcision because, just like that rabbi said, and this was, the, this was kind of the understanding, the widely accepted understanding, great is circumcision which overrides even the rigor of the Sabbath. And so, Jesus goes on to say in verses 22, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Jesus or law of Moses won't be broken, you see, he understands that, that, that his crowd understands that circumcision overrides, right, the Sabbath. Are you angry at me because I man, made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? In other words, you're, you have already acknowledged that on the Sabbath there is a work to do that is right and acceptable. 
And you're saying to me that because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath, not just, yes, is it important to welcome that eight-day-old male child into the covenant community by marking him with the right and covenant of circumcision? Absolutely it's important. How much more important would it be for me to make someone entirely well on the Sabbath, which is what I did when I offered that man those words at the pool of Bethesda when I said to him, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus is not being anti-Sabbath here. He's not saying it shouldn't be kept. He's not even really saying that the rules were too strict and that they need to be relaxed. Instead, Jesus is telling his opponents that they don't understand the Sabbath's meaning from God's perspective, and they don't understand the reason it was instituted. He would, he, what he would want them to understand is that, is that Sabbath was created for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. And so if there is something on the Sabbath that can be done for the blessing of somebody else, whether it's welcoming that eight-day-old child into the, into the covenant community through circumcision or me offering this man the ability to walk when he hadn't walked for 38 years, then certainly that is right to do on the Sabbath. Because, yes, yes Sabbath is important and it was created for us. But we weren't created for it. It serves us. One scholar said it this way, the person ends up being more important than the rules. So again, that eight-day-old child, important. That's why we circumcise them even on the Sabbath. That man who had been, would it be, would it be right for me? Would it be, would have been more correct for me to wait one more day and make him well then than to offer him healing and wellness and wholeness on the Sabbath? You see, not only is Jesus this miracle worker, not only is he, he faces his enemies and, and he's a fearless challenger of them, not only is he humble, true, perfect, he's the sent one who is blowing the minds of the people with this amazing teaching, but Jesus also has this incredible expertise and I would suggest the fulfillment of the law itself. And so he says to them, stop judging According to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. John does a very interesting thing in this verse. In the first half of the verse, when he says, stop judging according to outward appearances, he uses the present tense with the negative. And so John is, uh, is basically, Jesus is saying, has the emphasis of stop judging superficially. And the tense has the implication that they have been doing this, and Jesus says to them, stop. But when he says, after the semicolon, rather judge according to righteous judgment, John flips and he uses something known as the aorist tense. You don't have to understand exactly what that means, but what Jesus is doing is now, he's, he was, he's talking about what they have been doing. They've just been judging superficially, and he's telling them to stop doing that. Now he's referring to this specific case by the use of the aorist tense concentrates on this specific case of him healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. He tells them to make a righteous judgment about this case. Now, this should happen always. They should always make a righteous judgment about, about things like this and matters related to the law. But Jesus seems to be em emphasizing that this specific example 
would be if it's heated correctly by them, then they will be able to live into that more general thing of stopping judging according to the outward appearance. In other words, Jesus is, is, is showing them uh, what the Sabbath really meant and how it, it should be observed rather than their rote sort of uh, ceremonial sort of, um, you know, almost a letter of the law understanding of it. Jesus is trying to help them to understand that in the context of, the, the, of what he's done and why it's important for them to live in this way. As such, I would show, I, I suggest to you that not only, again, is Jesus showing himself to be an expert in the law, but he's showing himself to be a fulfiller of the law. Now in all this, wow, just, uh, uh, I tried to move quickly today through this, through this passage, but in, in just this little interaction that Jesus has, again, look at, look at all these different traits and aspects and attributes of Jesus that we see in these few verses in the Gospel of John. And as such, what we're seeing is, again, what is John's purpose? What is John hoping for? We know from John 20 that John is, is teaching all of these things and showing us Jesus in this particular way that, so that we may put our faith in him, that we might trust him and believe the one who blows our minds with his teaching, the one who, for him, doing a miracle is just a work. The one who came on this temporary errand of redeeming humanity to his father. He came to complete it. He came to do it, complete it, and then return back to his father. And that's exactly what he did. He is humble. He is true. He is perfect. He is our righteous king. And he is worthy of all of our worship. This morning, we're going to have the opportunity as we wrap up our service to share in communion. And hopefully, as you, on the, as you were on your way in, if you're here in person today, uh, you were able to pick up one of these uh, single packs that have the, has the little wafer on top and has the uh, little cup of juice underneath. And so I, I want you to go ahead and grab that so you can have that handy. If you're in your homes and you got the word that we were uh, through our email and, and, and online that you, that you were to be prepared for communion, you can go ahead and get those elements out right now. If you like, oh man, I forgot. Uh, you're gonna have some time here as uh, we have a little bit of time of worship. You're going to have some time to run to the kitchen if you need to and pick something up and that uh, you can use for the bread and something you can use for the juice. For the rest of us, uh, again, if you would just have that, uh, have that cup handy, uh, what, we, what I'd, li- I'd like for you to do is as you think about, think about all these ways in which John showed us this person of Jesus, think about all these different aspects, what one thing kind of sticks out to you today that maybe you could kind of focus on in our time of communion, in your time of worship. Maybe it's the way that his teaching has kind of blown your mind and drawn you into his relationship. Maybe it's the understanding that he comes on behalf of the Father. Maybe it's his humility or his truth or his perfection. Maybe it's the way that he fearlessly challenged his opponents. Maybe it's his, the power of his miracle uh, the power, his miracle working power. Maybe it's a way in which he came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Maybe one of those things really sticks out to you today as you would share in communion. Maybe one of those things would just be your focus as, as you prepare to eat, as we prepare to eat and drink together. Maybe you could use this time to focus on, on that particular aspect or maybe a couple of them in your personal time of worship and reflection. 
We're going to have a, a, a song today that's going to be led by uh, Josiah and, uh, and Becca Bruner. And as they're leading us, uh, as they're leading in that special music, um, I pray that this will give you an opportunity to, to focus on Jesus and prepare your hearts uh, to share in communion. Let me pray as we head into that time. Thank you, God, for the gift of your word. Thank you as well, Lord, for the gift of Jesus. As we focus on him and who he is, his character, his competencies, his, his heart, oh God, help us bring us to that place of worship. Help us to surrender to him and we pray these things, Lord, in his name, amen. Take some time to prepare and I'll be back up to lead you in eating and drinking in just a minute.